Okay, so you can scoot in a little bit more if you'd like to. Uh, we are uh, very blessed this evening to have uh, Dr. Shreet uh, speak on the second subject, or second uh, session of the subject of depression. And we want to remind you that there, after this particular session, there is a Q&A time. And the way we do it is we can do it two ways. If you don't feel like asking the question outright by raising your hand, because we will have that as well, then uh, just write it on a piece of paper, and uh, I'll be collecting those, and uh, I can read those questions off, and we'll have a Q&A time. It'll all be recorded for the recording, and uh, we'll be able to have kind of an open forum for you after this particular session. So as Dr. Shreet comes up, let's give him a warm welcome once again. the people in the back. Are you on there? Good. All right. I have um, some good news and bad news. Which do you want first? The bad news. The bad news? Okay. You see all this? It's all going to burn. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Relief. Some of you may be depressed. Let me suggest that if you're really depressed and that bothers you, your heart is still attached to the things of this world. It's all going to burn. I'm kind of a cruel pastor. Yeah, I thought I was. That says on, that says on. That's plugged in. Can you hear? Is it coming through the speakers? Yeah, okay. Yep. So, <laughs> I'm kind of a cruel pastor because our church, when I was a pastor, we had saved for several years to build a brand new building on our new property. And so finally, the we built the new building and the first service we had in it, I got up in the pulp and I said, now I want you to look around you. It's all going to burn. <laughs> They're all... <laughs> After all these years. But it will, because um, this world is going to be different. There is a new heavens and new earth ahead. But the reason why I started off that way in this second session is that when you receive distressing news, something changes in you. Uh, even secular researchers have acknowledged that. They've been able to attach electrodes to the brain and measure brain activity. Um, when a person is given psychotropic drugs, SSRIs, and then measure people's brain activities and brain changes, um, when a person is simply talking, when a person is talking, your, the chemicals in your brain are actually changing. In fact, just as much chemical change occurs in your brain through conversation as do through uh, the introduction of chemicals through forms of pills, your brain chemistry changes all the time. And receiving distressing news releases certain hormones in your body that says, oh, 
And you can feel it. You can feel it. Your heart governs you in that way. The heart, by the way, in the Bible is the same thing as, as your mind. We have a tendency in our Western culture to equate the heart with uh, romance, emotions. What happens around Valentine's Day? You see all of these stores and they have hearts in the windows and they have Cupid shooting bone arrows through hearts and you buy your sweetheart a big heart candy box and you give her some candy. Christian wives ought to be insulted by that because that basically says you're intellectually intrigued with her. All right. There's another, actually another organ of the body that the Bible uses to speak of emotions, and that's the bowels. Ephesians 4.32 talks about the bowels of compassion. All right, that has to do with emotions. Anybody that's been constipated for a period of time knows how emotional that is. All right? It's very emotional. The Bible's very realistic about it. So next Valentine's Day, if you really want to express deep emotion... You should be able to say to your wife, I love you with all my bowels. And then now you're expressing deep biblical emotion. I want to start a greeting card company, all right, with bowels on them, all right? I'm not sure it's going to really catch on, but we can try. But then you would be more consistent. But every time you read the word heart in the book of Proverbs or throughout the Old Testament, it's primarily talking about how you think. Let me show you an illustration of this, and we could show you lots more, but let's go over to Genesis chapter 6. You remember this? This is before God sends the flood on the earth. And verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw, and the Hebrew is very clear here. This is not he noticed one time. It's that in the Hebrew, this is he continually saw. He continually saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And notice this. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the Hebrew idea of heart. Kind of our Western civilization equates the heart with emotions and romance primarily, but the Bible equates it primarily with how we think. And the depths of our heart is only continually wicked. We think wicked thoughts is the idea. So when a person's heart doesn't get what it really wants, it really has desires, or maybe it gets something that it really doesn't want that comes at them, then there are certain chemical changes that occur in the body, and you feel it. You feel it. If you've ever received really distressing news, one moment you're doing fine, everything's good and bright in your life, and all of a sudden you have distressing news, you can feel your body go, there's release of certain chemicals from the brain and in the body that just slow everything down. It's distressing. So I want to describe for you Depression. When a person comes and talks about being depressed, 
you'll often hear, and in biblical counseling over the last 40, 50 years, there's been developed what we call a PDI, and all it is is just a, a way to collect data real quickly for someone who's come to counseling. It's personal data inventory. And on that, they'll often describe themselves as being moody, often blue, serious, shy, introverted, quiet, self-conscious, lonely, sensitive. All of those kind of terms are, are used to describe a person. That doesn't mean that every person who sees themselves as shy is necessarily depressed. We're not saying that. We're not saying that every person who's introverted is always a depressed person. We're not saying that. But yet these are some of the words that depressed people will use to describe themselves. They'll also use additional words. They'll talk about being nervous. I'm just kind of nervous all the time. I'm impatient. I'm impulsive. Um... I'm excitable. I'm imaginative. You've, you've probably heard of impulsive shoppers. Uh, they, they see something that they really want. It's on sale. and They think that's the only time in their entire life they're going to get it to that price. So I have to buy it. No matter what. No care or concern for how much money they have. They just buy it. Because I've got to get it now. Got to have it. There have actually been a lot of secular studies done on impulsive shoppers. Impulsive shoppers tend to be depressive. In fact, their only highlight of their life is when they buy something. So that's why they buy it. They don't buy it because they really need it. They buy it because they, they get a rush when they own it. I have it now. I have it. Now, they may be in debt, which now compounds their depression later on in life, but they, they have it, all right? So, they'll, de- they'll often describe themselves that way. And you'll be able to observe that there's certain halo data. That's just a nice biblical way of saying nonverbal communication. Um, how do they look to you? Uh, they'll have a what's the use type of attitude or air of hopelessness. And they'll try to convince you that, that there's no use. No use to trying to really help them. Uh, It's not going to work. They may cry easily, sigh, look down, sit motionless. There may be a general drooping of the face muscles, unkept appearance. They seldom ever laugh. There's a general slowdown in almost everything that they do, physical slowdown. And when a person is depressed over a long period of time, Uh, that represses their immune system. So they have a tendency to be sicker more than the average person because of that repressed immune system. Now remember, your counselee's presentation problem may not be depression. They may not think they're depressed. They may not think that they even have depression. They'll come in and describe something else that's going on in their life like Uh, My husband and I are always getting in fights. We're always quarreling. Or they may say, you know, I'm nervous. And I find myself fearful all the time. I didn't used to be this way, but I'm that way now. 
when they're not coming in with depression, but you may find after you've asked a lot of questions and got a good fix on where they're coming from and what's going on in their life, that their real struggle is with a struggle of depression. So their halo data, by their halo data, it becomes obvious that depression is a significant problem that is plaguing their life. Uh, what are some of their complaints? Some of the information, they'll talk about being tired often. They don't sleep well or sleep much. Or they go to bed tired and, and then they get up tired. That's a big thing. They go to bed tired and they get up tired. Um, in fact, they'll, they'll tell you, I went to bed at 10 o'clock last night and I didn't get up until 10 o'clock in the morning and I still feel tired. Well, that's 12 hours. They spent 12 hours in bed. I don't know when was the last time I did that. Um, but they'll talk about that, and yet they still feel like they're tired. Or there's never enough time to get things done. There's always things to do. I'm never getting anything done. Everything's left unfinished. Or there's more than normal sickness, backaches, headaches. There's a loss of appetite. Or they may swing like a pendulum to the other extreme and they may actually overeat all the time. Why do they do that? Because overeating is a way to compensate for their depression. It's a, it's a glucose overload in the body. Of course, they're going to suffer a real down later on, but at least while they're eating, they feel really good. Or at least temporarily. Uh, there's unduly frequent sex or even masturbation. Again, like the overeating, that's their only high point in their life. They become obsessed with it because that's the only thing that lifts them up. Or they talk about their problems, but they don't act upon their problem. You know, depressed people love to talk. They do. They'll talk, 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 talk. They'll just go on forever and ever. I had one of our counselors in our department describe it as diarrhea of the mouth. That's true. They just go on and on and on and on and on. They don't do anything about their problem, but they love to talk about their problem. They just love it, not act upon it. There's a general physical or spiritual, I should say, um, shutdown. Um, you ask them, what have you done about it? And they'll often say, well, I've prayed a lot. Well, have you studied the scriptures at all? Well, you know, I read the Bible, but I don't get anything out of the Bible. I'm not. Um, anything that requires conscious thought and effort is something that they almost avoid at all cost. It's no wonder the anti-Nicene fathers described this oftentimes as slothfulness. Okay. Now, there's a general evaluation we want to make about this, too. Um, depressed people are often guilty people because of their passivity towards God. We're going to talk about guilt later on. But this is important to realize. When a person is carrying around a lot of guilt, they look, everything in their life is undone. Everything's undone. Because there hasn't been any real serious perseverance to get it done. So this just kind of compounds, which makes them feel worse. As time goes on, 
Uh, fatigue then is increased by worry about those unfinished tasks, lack of sleep, overeating, dieting, drugs, dread of work. Um, all of all of those things are going on. Um, I just never have any energy. I never have any ambition. Now, I realize there are certain things, certain physiological causes. Maybe they're not getting good exercise, those kind of things. But a depressed person is generally like this all the time. Um, These side effects of depression tend to snowball into larger problems because they're never really resolved. They never get resolved. So it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill, just collecting. Things get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Essentially, the depressed person gets caught in a vortex of a downward spiral, and that spiral gets tighter and tighter until all hope is gone. And at this particular point, they've really reached the point of desperation. This is the point at which they are desperate. And they reach out for anything, anything that they think is going to lift them out of this, even if it just gives them a real temporary lift. So they do their best. Now, I certainly could spend an awful long time about talking about secular theories about depression and how secular theories attempt to approach to deal with this problem. And um, But I don't have time to do that, so I'm just going to go through this real quickly and get into more of a biblical approach. But obviously, there's the psychoanalytic school, um, which is Freudian. And basically, the idea is that uh, Freud believed in, uh, that all depression stemmed from anger and resentment that had been turned inward. Anger and resentment had been turned inward, which is really not far from what we suggested and saw in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain, where God said, um, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? At least Freud was able to recognize, even though he was a God-hating psychologist, um, he was able to recognize the fact that uh, anger was certainly a significant part or played a significant role in, in depression. And with depressed people. Um, uh, There's an object loss. uh, Maybe the loss of a parent through death or divorce. Um, More recently, uh, psychology has called episodic type depression. Where there's been a, a, a significant loss, an episode that has occurred in that person's life. That has resulted in that downward turn. Or there's a loss of self esteem, a failure produced Uh, a sudden downturn in self-confidence and ability. Maybe you've been studying for uh, an exam that you were taking for your job and you've been studying for months. And so you take the exam, you think you got everything down and you fail the exam and you go, oh, I can't believe that. I failed that exam. And all of a sudden, now you go into depression. It's going to take you several more months to go back before you can take that exam again. Um, so the psychoanalytic school would approach it from that perspective. The behavioral school says it is learned helplessness and hopelessness. It's learned. Now, at this particular point, the, the 
behavioral school, when it comes to depression, is not winning the debate in the secular world. Although in almost every other area, the behavioral school is winning. Behaviorism is very popular now, except in the area of anxiety and depression. Um, It's not a popular theory. But it's really funny because when there is no organic explanation for depression, the behavioral school at this particular point is really not far, it is not identical to, but it's not far from a biblical view of depression. Learned helplessness and hopelessness. Lack of proper positive reinforcement. The behavioral school said, well, if that person just had positive reinforcement in their life, then they wouldn't be depressed. That's not true. Um... It's really interesting. The state of California several years ago spent, I don't know, millions of dollars um, trying to demonstrate behaviorism with criminals. And, And the theory was that if you take a criminal who has uh, committed some kind of significant crime and put him in jail, then he's just going to be a worthless bum the rest of his life. And the reason why he committed that crime was that he didn't have Uh, a positive environment that he grew up in. So what they did was they spent millions of dollars educating a whole bunch of criminals. And they released them from prison after they had gotten their education. They completed high school and then went on and the state paid for their college. And then some of them went on and got their graduate degree. And some of them actually went on and got their doctorate, all paid for by my tax dollars. All right. In the state of California. And they were horrified to see the result of that. The result was that now that all these criminals were educated and released from prison, now not only were they not criminals, uh, but now they had really, really smart criminals. (laughs) That was the problem because there had never been a significant change in their heart. The theory of behaviorism is you put a person in, there's natural good in everybody, you put them in a good environment and they'll turn out good. (laughs) That's not true. Um, Certainly a good environment helps us to behave correctly, but it doesn't determine that we behave correctly. It doesn't determine that. The cognitive school says it's faulty, a dysfunctional way that a person views himself, his world, his experience, and the future. The individual experiences depression because he processes information incorrectly. Arbitrary interference, selective abstraction, overgeneralization, magnification, minimization, personalization, uh, absolutist or dichotomous type of thinking. So all of these things, it's it's a sort of a cognitive behaviorism that says... If you just straighten out the logic in that person, then everything will go well. And the obvious problem with that is the assumption is that people will act logically if shown the right logic. Ugh. I can try that. Um, I, I, I work in a college environment. And I'll frequently have... Um, Young men and women come in to me and talk about their relationships that they have. And a young lady will sit across the desk from me and she'll start describing this young man that she's dating. And 
how wonderful he is. And they just sort of match together. And, and I'm sitting there listening to all of this. And I'll say, well, is this young man back in your home, is, the, is he a Christian? Well, no, but if we get married, he said he'll go to church with me. And I think he's pretty close. I'm going. All right, so when she finished describing all of them, I have this whole lecture in the back of my head that I pull out. (laughs) And then I go after it. For the next hour, she's sitting there and her hair's blown back. All right? About everything that she, all the problems she's going to get into if she pursues this relationship. Here's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be back in here in counseling after you get married. And when you raise your children, he's not going to want your children to go to jail. And she'll listen to that very patiently. And then she'll tilt her head like this and she'll say, but Dr. Street, I love him. Are you listening to me? I'm trying to save you heartache and tears, okay? But she just tilts her head and says, but I love him. I just explain logically everything that's going to happen to that girl. If I were a betting man, and I'm not, I'd bet everything in my retirement on that. All right? This is what's going to happen. And I'd win the bet. But she's not acting on logic. She's acting on what she wants. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Right? It's not that people act logically. That's not the issue. Never was. He says men love darkness rather than light. It's a passion issue, not a logic issue. And that's the Achilles heel of cognitive behavior therapy. The assumption is if you straighten out the logic of a person, that person is going to act on that. They're going to correct everything. It's not a logic issue. It's a passion issue. All the logic in the world is not going to change her. You say, well, what do you need to do with that girl? You need to call her to repentance. Because she is playing with dynamite. And it's going to explode in her face. But she doesn't see it. She has these incredibly thick rose-colored glasses on. She doesn't see it at all. And then there's a sociological school. Sociological school says it's loss of role status, loss of prestige, loss of power, loss of identity. If that person had not experienced those kind of losses, then they wouldn't be depressed. Well, certainly... Losses can trigger depression. Nobody denies that. But it's not the loss. It's not the circumstance. Remember how we went back into Deuteronomy chapter 8? God brings loss into our life. So that we will know our own hearts. He'll take us through wilderness experiences to show us what our heart is about. He'll do that. 
as a father disciplines, this is a loving father, not an abusive father, but as a loving father disciplines his son, so God deals with us in a similar way. The existential school says loss of meaning of existence. Well, there's a touch of truth in that. We saw that in Ecclesiastes. The problem is the existential school has nothing to wed the heart to. They realize there's no meaning in us. Vanity of vanity, it's all vanity. So bubbles, so bubbles, it's all so bubbles. Everything in life, everything is meaningless in life. Well, sure it is. When you attach your heart to the things that are under the sun, it's meaningless. But they have no answer for it. And then, of course, the ep- and most prominent thing is the biological school. It has to do with genetic loading. It's chemical imbalance, abnormal body metabolism. It's a neurotransmitter malfunction, changes in the brain chemistry that's going on. There's physiological illness. You may have an illness and not be aware of it, or you may not know of the illness, but not, or you may be aware of it and of the illness, uh, but not be aware of its connection with depression, like diabetes, epilepsy, pernicious anemia. Uh, viral infections, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, those kind of things, or vitamin or trace element deficiencies or abnormalities there, or reaction to medicine, drugs. Well, nobody is saying in biblical counseling that some of these things aren't true. They're true. I mean, some of these things are very, very measurable. Uh, even though the chemical imbalance theory from the best of the reading that I've done on contemporary researchers is really a thing that's quickly sliding into the past. Um, and let me illustrate this for you. you. You hear Christians use this terminology all the time. Uh, it's interesting. When we, were, when we are born as children, as babies, we have over 100 billion neurons in our brain. Neurons different than every other cell of the body because it's able to communicate. A neuron, a single neuron, can actually carry on over a thousand simultaneous conversations with neurons around it. It can actually do that at the same time. Some of you are really good at multitasking, but you can't do that. A neuron, neuron in the brain is different than a cell in your toe or in your liver. A neuron is a very, very complicated probably the most complicated cell in your entire body. Um, and so they carry on complex communications with each other. I mean, 100 billion of them. That rivals the number of stars in the Milky Way. 100 billion is in the, in the brain of a, of a newly born child. Um, and there are chemical messengers that are neurotransmitters that two of them in particular, are linked to disorders. One is serotonin, the other one's norepinephrine. And so when this happens, um, the axon, which is basically, this is the way chemicals are sent away from the neuron, is communicated to another neuron, and there are little receptive sites, uh, dendrites on the other end, that receive that. But there is a little space between the end of 
an axon and the beginning of a dendrite. And in that little space there, is, there's another chemical <coughs> known as monoamine oxidase um, in that synapse between the neurons that devours the neurotransmitters. And it's thought that that is what causes, nobody knows exactly for sure, depression, or it's theorized that that's the case. And so antidepressants, which are SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, those things are supposed to inhibit that from happening. Um, they're believed to inhibit the MA, the mononamide oxidase, and restore a more biblical mood. I love this little illustration because this gives you a little bit of an idea. That's, that's uh, the end of an axon, and this is the surface of a dentrite, and the serotonin and norepinephrine are represented by these little pink triangles. And as that's communicated across that gap in between the neurons of, the, of your brain, uh, in, that, in this little gap, there swims this chemical like a killer whale that kind of consumes it. So that people who are really, really depressed say, I can't think clearly, they'll say. I can't put thoughts together. It's theorized that that is what has caused the depression. I can't, I can't think well. I can't put everything together. And so then drugs are given to suppress that. And there are just a whole host of drugs uh, that are used um, as control mechanisms for this. And uh, sometimes in class, I'll go through and talk about especially the side effects of all these drugs. I'm not going to take time to do that. But it's really interesting. Back in 2002, there was a very significant article done by the, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And uh, it said, it quoted the article there. You can see it on the screen. An increasing number of studies have failed to show a difference between active antidepressants and a placebo. Now, you don't hear that out there in the public. But nevertheless... Um, um, in fact, there was a very famous study done called the St. John Wart study, the St. John Wart study. And um, uh, 100 and it was about 150 subjects that were gauged to have severe depression based upon the Hamilton depression scale, gauged to have severe depression, were given one of three things. St. John Wort, which is an herbal medication that's supposed to help with depression. Uh, the second was um, an antidepressant, Zoloft. And the third one was a placebo. Only the subjects in the studies didn't know which they were receiving. Um, and as the conclusion of that particular study was the fact that there was no statistical different in the recovery rate of all three groups. No statistical difference between placebo, the antidepressant, and St. John Wart. So what really happened? What occurred here? Why did the people improve who were depressed? Why did they do that? Because they believed they were getting help. That's why. It used to be legal here in the United States. I know it was true in Texas. 
Carrie Hardy, who used to be on staff with us at Grace, he's a pharmacist, and he used to uh, practice in the state of Texas. It used to be legal for doctors in Texas to prescribe placebos to people. Uh, it's illegal to do that now, but it used to be legal to do it. A doctor tests somebody, but they still complain that they have problems, so they give them a placebo, and the, they all of a sudden get better because they believe they're going to get better. They think they're going to get better. So pills uh, are hope, little little pills of hope. I, I, I believe if I take this, I'm going to get better, and so I significantly get better, especially with depression. Ed Welch, in an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, makes a statement. He says, a placebo, which is nothing more than hope in pill form, is oftentimes equally effective in dealing with depression. And it's really interesting because there have been similar studies. 30% of depressed people were positively responsive to placebos in 1970. 50% were responsive in 2002. That means with each decade that goes by, each new generation is placing more and more hope in pills. More than our forefathers and foremothers did. If I can just take a pill to cure this thing, that, that'll cure it. So um, I trust that. I trust that more than anything else. Increased trust is being placed in the pill bottle with each generation that ultimately passes. Now, the interesting thing about it is even the best secular researchers are debunking the chemical imbalance as being a very simplistic theory. They actually believe that now that depression is not a result of chemical imbalance, has nothing to do with chemical imbalance in the body, but it has to do with two significant areas of the brain. The hypothalamus, which, by the way, uh, governs your, um, your sleep, your eating habits, your sexual behavior, those kind of things. And those are the very things that are affected in depression. There's a malfunction there. And in anxiety disorders, the amygdala, which is a smaller, where the hypothalamus is more walnut-sized, the amygdala is more uh, almond-sized uh, segment of the brain, where that's it's the amygdala that affects anxiety disorders and it's a malfunction in those two areas. That is increasingly now more the understanding than the chemical imbalance theory. So, uh, but people still use it. They'll still use and they'll still talk about chemical imbalance because it's out there in the popular vernacular. They, they think that way. Now, the question then comes, what do we think? What should we think as Christians? You say, well, it's about time you get there. (laughs) A biblical perspective on the development of depression. All right, let's make some observation here that are theological observation. And honestly, as I go through each one of these, I wish I could spend a lot more time on them, but I can't. Uh, Kylie, when she comes to master's, she can hear it more extensively later on. All right. Broad biblical perspectives. Number one. Depression is only possible in a fallen world. I want you to think about that. Depression is only possible in a fallen world. Uh, we have a guy on staff there in the science department at Masters. His name is Joe Francis. He's just an excellent microbiologist. He's such a good friend of mine. Joe Francis talks about the fact that prior to the fall, 
there was no bad bacteria in the world. <laughs> there was no bad bacteria. In fact, the majority of bacteria in the world is good bacteria. You have bacteria all over you, inside of you, everywhere. The majority of it is good bacteria. Only a very small percentage, and he lays out the statistical percentage of like three point something, something percent of all bacteria in the world is bad. So when God cursed, he only changed 3% of all bacteria. That's really interesting. And that's the only way. And then he throws up on the screen these uh, magnification of bad bacteria and all the different components of that bad bacteria. It's the most fascinating thing. I love listening to the thing. But same thing is true in depression. Depression is only possible in a fallen, sinful world, a sin-cursed world. That's such a key thing. Furthermore, depression is the only logical, rationally consistent conclusion of living without God. Remember how I talked about that? Where our hearts are wedded to the things of this world? Of living without God. God is no longer in the picture. Some of your discussion groups actually talked about that, I understand. Where God is no longer in the picture, that's depression. God's no longer a factor in that person's life. They may acknowledge God. They may even say that they're a Christian. But God and the thought of God makes no difference in their life. Deliverance from depression, which is one of the effects of the fall, is made possible through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ for us, including justification and sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit. So you're beginning to see at this particular point that the gospel is key here. You're beginning to see this. The gospel is key in dealing with depression. I mean, everybody that I counsel in this area we always end up having extensive discussions about the gospel in relationship to their personal life. This is critical. It's critical for their change. So, practical now and experiential deliverance from depression and many of the other effects of the fall is not the automatic involuntary result of regeneration and redemption. Why? Regeneration changes our heart, but it doesn't change our circumstances. We still live with transformed hearts in a sin-cursed world, right? We do, with sin-cursed bodies. Um, and that's going to have an effect upon us. That's going to introduce naturally because of our own lingering effects of depravity, an air of hopelessness that will tend to want to take over. Depression is possible even for believers. Why? Listen, listen why this is so important to understand here. Because believers still struggle with indwelling sin. And if you don't understand this, then you don't understand the seriousness of sin. We still struggle with indwelling sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He talks about the effects of sin 
in his life and how sometimes he will do things that he doesn't want to do in the depths of his heart. He wants to serve God. He wants to be pure. But he realizes that there is an indwelling principle of sin that is still in him. Furthermore, why do Christians sin? Well, they have not perfectly put off the old man with its corrupt patterns and the practices and put on the new man, which is renewed in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3. Paul addresses Christians and addresses the importance of this continual process of putting off the sinful patterns of thinking, of desiring, of behaving, and putting on new practices of holiness and righteousness based upon the gospel, based upon the transformation that Jesus Christ has brought in an undeserving way into their life. Third, the reason why Christians sin is they have the temptations of difficult circumstances and of people. In fact, one of the reasons why God took the children of Israel through the wilderness experience was to show them the sinfulness was still a part of their heart. It all of a sudden came out. It came out in their anger, their unhappiness. They're wanting to go back to Egypt. And there's that little phrase that was always, has always been perplexing to me. Why did they want to go back for leeks and onions? They must have been Italians. Uh, why, who would ever want to go back for leeks and onions? But they want to go back to Egypt because they missed the leeks and onions. Wow. Is the desert that bad? Leeks and onions were better than manna from heaven? But it's, it's the temptation, it's the hardships, it's the difficulties of life that squeeze us that bring this out. Why do Christians sin? You understand that as believers, we see through a glass, but we see through darkly, and we only know in part. That's very clear. We only know in part. We don't know everything. We think we do sometimes. We think we know better than God. Lord, if I was in control of my life, I would have never allowed this to happen. Well, you're not in control. And you're not God. So we see through a glass darkly. He always knows what's best. Why do Christians sin? We have only an earnest. We have a down payment of our inheritance. We don't have the full inheritance yet. And by the way, that full inheritance involves a redeemed body. <laughs> it doesn't struggle with all of these chemical processes. Or the effects of bad bacteria. Dr. Francis talks about the fact, you know those lotions that say it kills 100% of bacteria? He says, you don't want to do that. 97% of that is good bacteria. You hear about all these disease-resistant bacteria now because we're killing all the good bacteria. <laughs> killing all the good stuff. Well, you only have a down payment. You don't have the full inheritance. Why do Christians sin? Because we struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
We still struggle there. Still has an effect upon us. He's still going to draw us into perplexing situations. Now, here's the hope that I love bringing to my counselees, and you need to too. That believers will eventually experience complete, continuous, uninterrupted deliverance from depression and all of the other effects of the fall. Amen. Now, what counselor on the planet can give that kind of hope? None, except for Christians. None, except for you and I. No other counselor on the planet can say that for sure. At some particular point in the future, God has ordained this to happen. He's told us about that. Revelation 21, Revelation chapter 22, Psalm 16. We see that. We know there's going to be an uninterrupted time of absolute joy and glory in the new heavens and new earth. We know that. We just don't know it now. You'll be doing this retreat in heaven someday. That's good. Now, let's take a look at some specific biblical examples. I know in your discussion groups, I asked you to think about people who struggle with. Let me give you, you use a few illustrations. This is not a whole uh, exhaustive list. We've already mentioned Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. What happened there? If you want to grab your Bible, let's go back there. In Genesis chapter 4. And take a look at this. You recall the account with his brother Abel. The word of all means breath or smoke. That's where you get Abel. The word Cain is a word that means I have gotten. I have gotten. I have gotten a son. That's what Eve named her son, Cain. I've gotten. Um, And in verse 3 it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And then in verse 7 is the first direct instructions on dealing with sin post-fall. So what, what happens here? <clears throat> Verses 3 and 4, Cain offers his offering. He brings fruit, not the firstlings of the flock. God expect, expected a death to occur. There had to be shed blood for the remission of sin. Uh, it's, it's understood that Cain understood that, especially because God had to slaughter animals for Adam and Eve for their coverings. So... Blood and the shedding of blood, the giving of life was vitally connected to sin from the very, very beginning. God rejects Cain's offering of fruit. Um, This displeased God. 
Cain responds in verse 5 by becoming angry. His countenance fell. He pouts that he has not received what he really wanted, that is God's acceptance of his sacrifice. There's no sign, however, of or remorse over his sin. No sign of repentance. And yet he has an opportunity to repent. God gives him counsel in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 7. If you do well, (coughs) will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So, why are you dejected? Why are you down, Cain? If you do right, if you do the right thing, the idea, you'll be accepted and your countenance will be lifted up. Listen, there's a little principle there that's really key and it carries through right to the day. There is always corresponding joy in obedience. That's really important for a depressed person to understand. There is always joy in obedience. God said that. If you do right, your countenance will be lifted up. There's always joy in obedience. If you do the right thing, that will occur. But sin lies at the door. If you decide not to do that, like a wild animal that's at the door, it desires to jump on you and master you and control you, but you must master it. Cain chose not to deal with it correctly. He chose not to repent. And what does he do? He murders his brother. Um, it's a terrible thing. First John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The Greek is very explicit there. Cain slits his brother's throat. He doesn't stone him. Um, he doesn't break his neck. He slits his throat. Because that's what you did with a sacrifice. Okay, God, you want a bloody sacrifice? I'll give you a bloody sacrifice. And so he slits his brother's throat as a bloody sacrifice, which is not what what God wanted at all. Verse 9, God intervenes. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He says, um, Cain is defiant in verse 9 by saying that. And then in verses 11 and 12, God announces his punishment. Now, notice this. There is a downward progression, like a spiral that gets a vortex that gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter as time goes on here. (coughs) Verse 11 says, Now you are cursed from the ground, for which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, but you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And notice what verse 13 says. Notice Cain's response to that. He says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Um, In other words... I can't live like this. That's the idea. I'm going to die underneath this. There was this anger, this wrath, this bitterness, his murder, the excuses that he makes. I can't bear this. 
In other words, he's saying to God, you're being too hard on me. You read some of the journals that some of the people that I've counseled has written in their depression. They have almost those identical words in that journal. God, you are being too hard on me. Just, just like Cain. It's the same thing. And then Cain gets this persecution complex. You can see this. Everybody's going to be out to get me. Behold, you have driven me from this day, from the face of the ground, and your face, and from your face, and I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And by the way, I put this up. This is something I found in a children's book that gives you the wrong idea about what happens. And it's almost as if that Cain goes to kill his brother with a big rock. That's not true. First John's very clear about the fact that he slits his brother's throat. Now, so Cain has this persecution complex now. Everybody's out to get me. I remember counseling a guy several years ago. He came from Cincinnati. And he believed that the local police, the state police, um, the FBI, the CIA, um, they were all out after him. There wasn't a shred of evidence that that was the case. But they believed, he, he believed they were all out after him. And one day I remember in counseling, I said to him, you know, you really believe this, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, why do you think you're that important? <laughs> that all these people would be after you. That is exactly Cain's problem. He thinks he's all that. And he's not all that. Everybody's out to get me. That's guilt talking. That's what Proverbs says, right? Proverbs talks about the fact that, that when guilt talks in our head, it makes it seem like everybody's going to be after us. Um, chapter 28 and verse 1. Of Proverbs says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. In other words, guilt causes people to be suspicious of everybody else around them. It's that guilty conscience that we'll talk about later on. Well, Cain's not the only example of that. There's Elijah as well. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we've already talked about the fact how Elijah went out into the wilderness, sat down underneath the juniper tree and wished that he could die. We can see the psalmist in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We can see Jonah going and preaching before Nineveh. Jonah hated the Ninevites because of their cruelty against Israel. He hated them. They were the enemies of Israel. He didn't want to preach to them, but God, of course forces him to go, and he goes and preaches, and then he goes up on the hillside, sits down, and waits until God rains his judgment down upon the, his enemies. And to his horror, his enemies repent. Imagine that. 
A person whose heart is full of hate preaching to people, hoping they're not going to repent, and they repent. Imagine that. That's horrible. God doesn't honor the messenger. He honors the message. That's what he does. He doesn't honor the messenger. He honors the message. God used that message that Jonah spoke, and then he, he becomes really depressed over what? Well, God allows a gourd shade him during the heat of the day, grow up around him. And then he sends a, a worm to destroy that particular gourd. And now he's all depressed. And God says to Jonah, why are you so upset and depressed about that gourd when there are the, the city of Nineveh is full of children who you wanted me to destroy? Where's the justice in that? Well, there isn't. Job, you can see the same example of Job. You can see it with David. You can see it with Paul. Who I don't believe he really became depressed, but he came really close. He was so discouraged. So let's make some, some conclusions about this. Number one, depression is the, most, is the result of responding to an awareness of personal sin and a failure in an unbiblical way. It is the result of responding to an awareness of personal sin and a failure in an unbiblical way. That's depression. Depression is the result of a failure to realize certain goals that are deemed to be highly desirable and necessary for life, to be worthwhile and to be happy. I haven't achieved the goals that I thought I would be able to achieve. It's something I really wanted in my heart. Or sometimes we get things we really don't want. In our heart. Depression is a result of unbiblical thinking. We don't think in a biblical way. Or depression is the result of unbiblical responses or reactions to hard and unpleasant circumstances in life. Or depression may be facilitated by physical exhaustion and or illness. Sometimes a person who's experienced insomnia is more subject to depression. But that insomnia also brings out certain issues in their heart. They become angry, hateful, mean with people because they're not getting their sleep. They don't have to be hateful, angry, and mean with people, but that's already in their heart. It's the insomnia that's bringing that out. Some of the biological and physical components in the development of depression may be indicated by any of the following factors. You've got to be aware of this as a good counselor. Serious impairment of intellectual abilities. That There could be a biological element involved, extremely rapid onset, severe depression suddenly appears with no previous occurrence or extremely slow, uh, change almost is imperceptible, or the lack of any significant traumatic events or flagrant violations of the person's personal standards closely related to the time, to the development of the depression, or there's rapid fluxation of emotions or a track record of being a relatively secure, stable, confident, well-adjusted, realistic person. For example, let me share, share the story of Evelyn Lakes. Several years ago when I was a pastor, Delbert and Evelyn Lakes, Evelyn Lakes was a part of our congregation. God has since promoted both of them to heaven. But I, I just love them. They were always very faithful. One day Evelyn called me up and said, Pastor, I don't know what's going on, but for the past several weeks I've experienced depression like I have never experienced in my entire life. She was a woman around 70 years of age. And I talked with her husband, Delbert, and Delbert says, yeah, I've never seen my wife like this. Past six weeks, she's been 
severely depressed. And uh, she thought it was demonic. She thought something else was going on in her life at that particular time. So I sat down and began to talk through what was going on in her life and examining certain things. And part of the routine, I asked, you know, are you on any medications? She told me about some of the medications. She was uh, actually prescribed a beta blocker for her heart. So in between that first counseling appointment and the next counseling appointment, I did a little background research on the side effects of the drugs that she was taking. And one of the side effects of one of the beta blockers that she was on was first thing on the list, the top of the list of the PDR was severe depression. I'm going, whew. So I call Evelyn up and I say, Evelyn, did your cardiologist tell you that one of the side effects of your beta blocker is a severe depression? No. I said, I think you need to call your cardiologist back and tell them what you're experiencing. She says, well, you know, it's really interesting. I just started taking that drug about 10 weeks ago. Really? She called the cardiologist. He switched her onto a different beta blocker. All of the effects went away. It wasn't a spiritual issue after all. It was a physical issue. That's not true with everybody, but that was true with Evelyn. There's no history of chronic blame shifting or excuse making, and yet they still are depressed. There's semantic complaints are few in number, specific and continuous in nature. There's no history of hallucinatory somatic complaints. Um, there's sensory and non-persecutory, accusatory hallucinations. Um, there's extreme inexplicable delusions, not simply due to a lack of communication or mis perception, nor no basis whatsoever in that. Sometimes advanced age can be a factor. Uh, that was, I was very suspicious of that, especially in Evelyn's case. Or functioning, uh, they're functioning biblically and they're really trying to do the godly thing and yet they're still experiencing the depression. Or there is somehow use of some kind of prescription over-the-counter or illegal drugs uh, that have a depressant type of side effect. All of those things you need to be aware of to make sure that there's not a physiological component to that depression. That's really key, and that's listed there in your notes. Now, let me make one comment before we conclude about so-called um, manic depressant or bipolar uh, depression, often referred to as bipolar. <coughs> Strange behavior which goes from extreme elation to the extreme of being blue. Um, Bizarre behavior is often used as a camouflage to throw other people off track. For example, on the manic side, um, emotional effects and manifestations are, they're elated, there's uh, increased gratification, they like self, there's increased involvement, there's increased sense of humor. Depressive side, they're depressed, loss of gratification, disgusted with self, loss of involvement, loss of humor in their life. Um, the cognitive manifestations... On the manic side, there's their positive self-image, positive expectations, blames others, denial of personal problems, uh, arbitrary decision-making, um, self-enhancing. Their delusions are self-enhancing, full of prestige. On the uh, depressive side, uh, negative self-image, negative expectations, blame self, uh, exaggeration of problems, indecisive, and self-degrading. Um, motivational manifestations, 
manic side, driven, compulsive, action-oriented wishes, drive for independence, desire for self-enhancement. On the depressed side, there's, they're devoid of um, motivation. They wish to escape. There's excessive, uh, they're excessively dependent upon other people. There's death wishes. Physical manifestation on the manic side, hyperactivity, indefatigability, um, appetite, variable, increased sexual interest, insomnia. On the depressed side, uh, a general retardation of activities, fatigability, loss of appetite, loss of sexual interest, insomnia, or excessive sleep. All of those things are going on. Now, how, how do we deal with that when there are extreme behaviors? It's almost like pendulum living. They swing from one where they are extremely excitable and very, very happy, and the next day they're in the depths of despair. All right? How do, you, how do you deal with that? That is the bipolar swing, that pendulum type of living. Well, you've got to see elation sometimes as overcorrection, a reaction to the depressed side. They see sometimes elation as a solution or elation as a form of denial or elation as sort of a frantic straw grasping at something that maybe will pull them out of this or elation as a part of pendulum living way of life. Um, Now, we're going to talk more specifically on how to approach and how to deal with that, but I at least want to make you aware of that type of depression, that manic type of behavior, and we're out of time. And I'm sorry I had to go through that last part really, really fast. But because it was because of the time. So I think we're at a point where, and Pastor, it's up to you on how you want to deal with this, that we'll do the Q&A um, here for about a half an hour. Is that correct?